0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. How do you know the difference between something real and something imagined? New experiments show that the brain distinguishes between perceived and imagined mental images by checking whether they cross a reality threshold. That's next. Quanta Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. The brain constantly processes streams of visual signals from the eyes and purely mental pictures from our imagination. Brain scan studies have repeatedly found that seeing something and imagining it evoke similar patterns of neural activity. Yet for most of us, the subjective experiences they produce are clearly different. Thomas Nasalaris is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota.
1: You have two signals that represent completely independent content. Like I can look outside my window right now and if I want to, I can imagine a unicorn walking down the street. And my brain has to represent those two things simultaneously. It's very clear to me which of those two sensory representations corresponds to reality outside of my brain. We also know that when I'm seeing the world and I'm imagining the unicorn walking through it, it's the same brain regions, at least to the level that we've been able to resolve with fMRI, you've got the same brain regions that are representing both sources of content.
0: The knowledge that unicorns are mythical barely plays into that. A simple imaginary white horse would seem just as unreal. Nadine Dykstra is a postdoctoral fellow at University College London. There's
2: more and more research showing that when we imagine something, like picture a pink elephant in your brain, then something very similar happens in your brain as when you would actually see that elephant in real life. So the question is, like, why are we not constantly hallucinating?
0: Dykstra led a study recently published in Nature Communications. It provides an intriguing answer. The brain evaluates the images it is processing against a reality threshold. If the signal passes the threshold, the brain thinks it's real. If it doesn't, the brain thinks it's imagined. Such a system works well most of the time because imagined signals are typically weak, says Dijkstra. Imagination
2: usually is not confused for reality because it's just weaker, but when it gets more vivid, you do confuse it for reality.
0: Lars Mookley is a professor of visual and cognitive neurosciences at the University of Glasgow. He says although the brain is very competent at assessing the images in our minds...
1: This kind of reality checking is a serious struggle we have...
0: The new findings raise questions about whether variations or alterations in this system could lead to hallucinations, invasive thoughts, or even dreaming. Here's Nazalaris again.
1: I love the cleverness of the experiment. I love the clarity of the logic and the hypotheses. They've done a great job, in my opinion, of taking an issue that philosophers have been debating about for just centuries and defining models with predictable outcomes and testing them. That, to me, is just a really exciting place to be in neuroscience, and they're right there.
0: Dykstra's study of imagined images was born in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, when quarantines and lockdowns interrupted her scheduled work. Bored, she started going through the scientific literature on imagination and then spent hours combing papers for historical accounts of how scientists tested such an abstract concept. That's how she came upon a 1910 study conducted by psychologist Mary Cheves West Perky. Vincent Nane, a professor of philosophical psychology at the University of Antwerp, says it's a very important and classic study.
1: So the idea is that you're looking at the wall, it's a, you know, plain white wall. And the experimenter is asking you to visualize a banana, so that would be a mental imagery a banana. And unbeknownst to you, they project a very faint image of a banana on the wall. And you take yourself to be imagining that banana, but in fact you're perceiving. So is that perception? Is that mental imagery?
0: Perky's conclusion was that when our perception of something matches what we know we are imagining, we will assume it's imaginary. It eventually came to be known in psychology as the Perky effect. In the 1970s, psychology researcher Sidney Joelson Siegel revived interest in Perky's work by updating and modifying the experiment. In one follow-up study, Siegel asked participants to imagine something while she projected something else faintly onto the wall. Here's Nane again.
1: You're supposed to visualize the New York City skyline. And they project a tomato on the wall, and what you end up visualizing is New York City skyline at sunset or something like that. It's a mix between the perception and imagery, and you don't know that it was perception that was the red circle.
0: Not all studies that aimed to replicate Perky's findings succeeded. Some of them involved repeated trials for the participants, which muddied the results. Thomas Nazalaris points out that once people know what you're trying to test, they tend to change their answers to what they think is correct. So Dijkstra, under the direction of Steve Fleming, a metacognition expert at University College London, set up a modern version of the experiment that avoided the problem. In their study, participants never had a chance to edit their answers because they were tested only once. So basically,
2: when you want to investigate this kind of thing in the lab, as soon as participants know that something real can be presented to them, they're going to be biased. So you can't do multiple trials, basically, because then they're going to kind of look for it. But we wanted to create a situation which people were just imagining and they didn't know that
0: real things could be presented to them, and then we secretly presented something. The work modeled and examined the Perky effect and two other competing hypotheses for how the brain tells reality and imagination apart. One of those alternative hypotheses says that the brain uses the same networks for reality and imagination but functional magnetic resonance imaging, or FMRI, brain scans might not have high enough resolution for neuroscientists to discern the differences in how the networks are used. For example, one of Mookley's studies suggests that in the brain's visual cortex, which processes images, imaginary experiences are coded in a more superficial layer than real experiences are. Mookley says, with functional brain imaging, we're squinting our eyes. Within each equivalent of a pixel in a brain scan, there are about 1,000 neurons, and we can't see what each one is doing. The other hypothesis is suggested by studies led by Joel Pearson at the University of New South Wales. The idea is that the same pathways in the brain code for both imagination and perception, but imagination is just a weaker form of perception. During the pandemic lockdown, Dijkstra and Fleming recruited for an online study. 400 participants were told to look at a series of static-filled images and imagine diagonal lines tilting through them to the right or left. Why static? Here's Dykstra. Basically, we wanted to create
2: a situation in which it was really difficult for people to be like, oh, what am I seeing? What am I looking
0: at? Between each trial, participants were asked to rate how vivid the imagery was on a scale of one to five. What they didn't know was that in the last trial, the researchers slowly raised the intensity of a faint projected image of diagonal lines tilted either in the direction the participants were told to imagine or in the opposite direction. The researchers then asked the participants if what they saw was real or imagined. Dijkstra expected that she would find the Perky effect, that when the imagined image matched the projected one, the participants would see the projection as the product of their imagination. Instead, the participants were much more likely to think the image was really there. Yet, there was at least an echo of the Perky effect in those results, Participants who thought the image was there saw it more vividly than the participants who thought it was all their imagination. In a second experiment, Dijkstra and her team didn't present an image during the last trial, but the result was the same. The people who rated what they were seeing as more vivid were also more likely to rate it as real. Dijkstra says the observations suggest that imagery in our mind's eye and real perceived images in the world do get mixed together. She says when this mixed signal is strong or vivid enough, we think it reflects reality. It's likely that there's some threshold above which visual signals feel real to the brain and below which they feel imagined, she thinks. But there could also be a more gradual continuum. To learn what's happening within a brain trying to distinguish reality from imagination, the researchers reanalyzed brain scans from a previous study. In that, 35 participants vividly imagined and perceived various images, from watering cans to roosters. In keeping with other studies, they found that the activity patterns in the visual cortex in the two scenarios were very similar. Dijkstra says vivid imagery is more like perception, but she says whether faint perception is more like imagery is less clear. There were hints that looking at a faint image could produce a pattern similar to that of imagination, but the differences weren't significant and need to be examined further. What's clear is that the brain must be able to accurately regulate how strong a mental image is to avoid confusion between fantasy and reality. You remember Thomas Nazalaris.
1: According to the study, the brain has this really careful balancing act that it has to perform because it is, in some sense, going to interpret mental imagery as literally as it does visual imagery. And because of this arrangement, this implies that it The brain really has to regulate how strong the mental imagery signal
0: is. Dijkstra and her colleagues found that the strength of the signal might be read or regulated in the frontal cortex, which analyzes emotions and memories, among its other duties. But it's not yet clear what determines the vividness of a mental image or the difference between the strength of the imagery signal and the reality threshold. Nasalera says it could be a neurotransmitter, changes in neuronal connections, or something totally different. It could even be a different, unidentified subset of neurons that sets the reality threshold and dictates whether a signal should be diverted into a pathway for imagined images or a pathway for genuinely perceived ones. Mookley says that sort of finding would tie the first and third hypotheses together neatly. Even though the findings are different from his own results, which support the first hypothesis, Mookley likes their line of reasoning. He calls it an exciting paper with an intriguing conclusion. But Peter C, a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Dartmouth College, says imagination is a process that involves much more than just looking at a few lines on a noisy background.
2: Imagination, because it's a process, right, it's not simply a static noun, it's a process involving nouns and verbs, really, we should think of imagination as sort of an internal mental workspace where we're doing work, like, you know, Orville or Wilbur Wright putting a propeller onto a wing and saying, oh, well, maybe I can make an airplane. And then they go and build it in their bicycle shop. That's imagination.
0: The differences between Perky's findings and Dijkstras could be entirely due to differences in their procedures. But they also hint at another possibility, that we could be perceiving the world differently than our ancestors did. Dykstra says her study didn't focus on beliefs in an image's reality, but was more about the feeling of reality.
2: It feels like either things feel real or they feel imagined, like it's a very categorical feeling.
0: The authors speculate that because projected images, video, and other representations of reality are commonplace in the 21st century, Our brains may have learned to evaluate reality slightly differently than people did just a century ago when Perky did her study.
2: We found something slightly different to what she found, and we think that probably part of that is because Even though people were not expecting to see something, it's still more expected than if you're in 1910 and you've never seen a projector in your life before.
0: The reality threshold today is therefore likely much lower than in the past. So it may take an imagined image that's much more vivid to pass the threshold and confuse the brain. The findings open up questions about whether the mechanism could be relevant to a wide range of conditions in which the distinction between imagination and perception dissolves. For example, Dijkstra speculates that when people start to drift off to sleep and reality begins blending with the dream world, their reality threshold might be dipping.
2: There's some evidence to suggest that people experience, for example, visual hallucinations have hyper excitability of their visual cortex, which mm-hmm. would be in line with an increase in signal strength. But then maybe something like schizophrenia, where there's like a general breakdown of reality, then maybe that is more in line with a reality threshold that is like... Off, that the calibration is wrong.
0: Some studies have found that in people who hallucinate, there's a sort of sensory hyperactivity, which suggests that the image signal is increased. But more research is needed to establish the mechanism by which hallucinations emerge. After all, you can experience vivid imagery without hallucinating. Nane thinks it would be interesting to study the reality thresholds of people who have hyperphantasia, an extremely vivid imagination that they often confuse with reality. Similarly, there are situations in which people suffer from very strong imagined experiences that they know are not real, as when hallucinating on drugs or in lucid dreams. Dijkstra says it would be interesting to look at post-traumatic stress disorder.
2: Involuntary imagery would feel more real than voluntary imagery. So the PTSD thing is, for example, very much an involuntary imagery, right? People just start seeing things that they didn't want to, and then we
0: would expect that that does feel more real. Some of these problems may involve failures in brain mechanisms that normally help make these distinctions. Dijkstra thinks it might be fruitful to look at the reality thresholds of people who have aphantasia. That's the inability to consciously imagine mental images. The mechanisms by which the brain distinguishes what's real from what's imaginary could also be related to how it distinguishes between real and fake images. In a world where simulations are getting closer to reality, distinguishing between real and fake images is going to get increasingly challenging. Dykstra and her team are now working to adapt their experiment to work in a brain scanner. She eventually hopes to figure out if they can manipulate this system to make imagination feel more real. For example, virtual reality and neural implants are now being investigated for medical treatments, such as to help blind people see again. Dijkstra says the ability to make experiences feel more or less real could be really important for such applications. It's not outlandish, given that reality is a construct of the brain. Here's Visual and Cognitive Neuroscience's Professor Lars Mookley.
2: You know, the overarching problem is that underneath our skull, everything is made up. We entirely construct a world in its richness and detail and color and sound and content and excitement that is totally made up. I mean, it is created by our neurons.
0: Dijkstra says that means one person's reality is going to be different from another person's reality. What I always like about this research
2: is it really shows you how subjective your reality is. The line between imagination and reality is just not so solid, like it's not so clear cut.
0: Arlene Santana helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Yasmin Saplikoğlu's full article, Is It Real or Imagined? How Your Brain Tells the Difference, on our website, quantummagazine.org. Explore math mysteries in the quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press. Available now at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore.